that our brother has said. We do appreciate all who have come. You're making me very much at home with this weather. It's a lot cooler today and some rain, but we're glad to be together. I'd like to read tonight in the book of Exodus, and we're reading in chapter 17. Exodus and chapter 17, reading at verse 1, and all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, for with thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek, and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Amalek, and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the years of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, for he said, Because the Lord has sworn, that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation 
to generation. Now we do know that God will add his blessing to the reading of his own good word. This book of Exodus that we have read from this evening is undoubtedly the great book of redemption. Just as the opening book of our Bible that we were reading from last evening emphasizes the great truth of regeneration. You may have noticed that in the book of Genesis. It is emphasized in that opening book, the need of a second birth. You recall that the first birth in the book of Genesis was the birth of Cain. But there was nothing in that first birth for God. That was a lesson we had to learn. There was nothing in our first birth to bring glory and honor to God. But there certainly was in the second birth. The second to be born in the book of Genesis was Abel. And he could bring something to God, offer unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. You can trace that throughout that opening book. We were thinking of an Abram. You remember the first to be born into his family was an Ishmael. But there was nothing in that first birth for God. All Ishmael can do is mock when he sees the second birth. The second to be born was an Isaac, the man who can voluntarily go to Mount Moriah and lay himself on the altar for God. You remember in the story of an Isaac, the first to be born was an Esau. He's called the man of the field. The Lord Jesus said the field is the world. He's the man of the world. But you will notice there was something in the second birth. The second to be born was a Jacob. And you can say what you like about Jacob. But he ever did long for the blessing of God to rest upon him. I say you can trace it right to the end of the book. You remember in the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. The first to be born was a Manasseh. His name means forgetting. But the second to be born was an Ephraim. His name means fruitful. And it is really only the second birth that can bring fruit for God. That is a very important principle. The first lesson, as it were, God is teaching in his word, is the importance of the second birth. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, Art thou the teacher of Israel, and knowest not these things? Nicodemus, you ought to have learned from the opening book of your Bible that you must be born again. There needs to be a second birth. But when we come to the book of Exodus, it is not now so much the truth of regeneration that is taught, but it is undoubtedly the wonderful truth of redemption. As most will be aware, in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, we find the people in bondage. We find them in slavery. They're suffering under the cruel taskmaster of a pharaoh. And they need to be emancipated. They need to be delivered. This book of Exodus really, it divides into three sections. Three main sections in the book. From chapter 1 to the close of chapter 18, you can write over that section, the hand of God. It's a marvelous thing to see the hand of God in providing and meeting the need of his people. And in that section... Not only to see the hand of God, but to see something of his grace. 
And then from chapter 19 to the end of chapter 24, you could write over that section. Now, not the hand of God, but the hill of God. God brings his people to Sinai. It is there that the law was given. So now it's not so much the display of his grace, but it is something of his government that we're learning about. For the God who redeems a people will give them instruction how they should live their life to his glory. And then in the closing section of the book, from chapter 25 to the end of the book, chapter 40, you'll find in that section the house of God. For there is the great subject of the tabernacle brought before us. And in that section we learn something of the glory of God. Because when that tabernacle was erected, everything built according to the divine pattern. I read in chapter 40 that the glory of God filled the house. But we've read a chapter in that section dealing with the hand of God and seeing something of his grace. It is a wonderful thing to see the hand of God in bringing a people out of bondage. Delivering them all in the value of the blood of the Lamb. You know we sometimes sing at times and we have known redemption Lord from bondage worse than theirs by far. Sin held us by a stronger core but by thy mercy free we are. But I see in these early chapters of this book not only God delivering his people from bondage but you'll notice his hand again in providing for them in giving them a cloud. God delivering them in chapter 12 is a God who graciously granted them a cloud in chapter 13. You see, God just didn't deliver a people out of bondage and say to them, well now, I hope you make the journey home all right. No, no, no. The God who delivers is the God who directs. And so kindly, in chapter 13 of this book, you see God graciously giving these very same people a cloud. You know, they never asked for the cloud. It was never requested. And the marvelous thing is this, it was never removed. All the journey through, though they grieved him at times and disappointed him, I read this, he took not away the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. That cloud, of course, is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit. We're not left to guess that. Our Bible teaches that. There's a lovely statement in Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 14. I read, the Spirit of the Lord caused them to rest. Not so much the cloud. The Spirit of the Lord caused them to rest. So the Lord did lead his people. So you see, not only the hand of God in delivering them, but the hand of God in directing them in the journey through. And then you will notice with me where this cloud brought them to. One of the first places the cloud brought them to was to the water. Brought them to the Red Sea. You know the Apostle Paul takes that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He said they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And you know that is true in the Christian experience. We weren't long saved 
until through reading our Bible we learnt the need of being baptised. And perchance I'm speaking to someone this evening and you have known something of the mighty power of God in delivering you out of bondage. Remember the next step after conversion is to be baptised. St. Peter, it's the answer of a good conscience unto God. A believer in Christ cannot really have a good conscience if they're saved and not baptised. So the cloud brought them to the water. You will notice too the hand of God in chapter 16 of this book. In providing for the manna, food for the journey through, food that they could enjoy, suited for all on the journey. But now you will notice when we come to our chapter, not only do we see the hand of God in providing food for them, but you will notice now God will provide water from the rock. I did notice in reading through the Gospel of John recently that John follows the very same pattern as Moses did in the book of Exodus. You may recall in John chapter 6 the Lord Jesus speaks about the manna. He says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. He says, I'm the true bread. I'm the answer to the manna. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Well, if Exodus 16 finds its link with John chapter 6, you'll notice the chapter we're in has its link with John chapter 7. For in John chapter 7, I hear the Saviour say, It was the last day, the great day of the feast. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture saith, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Christ was not yet glorified. So in Exodus 16, we have the bread. And now in Exodus 17, we have the water. Just like in John 6, we have the bread. And in John 7, we have the water. You'll notice with me when we come to this chapter, it's really in two sections. The first seven verses, we're learning about water from the rock. And then in the close of the chapter, we're learning about warfare with Amalek. In the first part of the chapter, the first seven verses, we have the smiting of the rock. And then in the closing section, we have the subtlety of the enemy. You notice with me that the children of Israel, they have come to Rephidim. And what do they discover? They discover there's no water. And you might say this evening, well, what has went wrong? Have they failed in some way along the journey? Have they sinned? I want you to notice that wasn't the reason at all. You notice that they came to Rephidim by the commandment of the Lord. That very cloud that we have spoken about already directed them to Rephidim. You see, would God bring his people to a place where there was no water? That's exactly what he did. 
You see, dear child of God, God oftentimes brings you and I along a path in life. And we may wonder, why should he do that? Well, there are lessons he wants to teach us. And there were certainly lessons God wanted to teach his people at Rephidim. I know to them, it was a sad disappointment. But don't forget, it was his appointment. It was his guidance that brought them there. We mentioned last evening, and Abram. You know, when Abram set foot on the land, the first thing he discovered, there was a famine in the land. Had he stepped out of the mind and will of God? Of course not. He was right in the very center of the will of God. When Paul and Silas found themselves in Acts 16 in a prison, and in the inner prison, and their feet in the stocks, and their backs bleeding, had they stepped out of the will of God? Let me assure you, they were in the very center of the mind and will of God. I was thinking this morning about Joseph in the book of Genesis. You know, Joseph was as much in the will of God when he was in the pit and in the prison as much as when he was in the palace. It was all the training. And so God is training his people. He brings them to Rephidim and allows at Rephidim there is no water that they may have that they might have their eye solely upon him but what did they do just like so many of us when the least little problem arises they begin to chide and they begin to murmur and they begin to complain how quickly they had forgotten all the past mercies of God and how he had brought them out with a great hand and brought them through the Red Sea and they had forgotten so quickly what Elam was like. The wells and the palm trees. How quickly, dear child of God, you and I forget the past mercies of our God. You know, in that regard, I was thinking of the widow in First Kings chapter 17. The widow of Zarephath. You recall that for many months she had enjoyed a barrel of meal that never wasted. And a cruise of oil that never failed. But when her son, son took it. And there was no breath left in him. You know the story. As it were, she points the finger at the man of God, Elijah. What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come to call my sin to remembrance? In slaying my son. How different the woman in the next book. In Second Kings chapter 4. When a very similar matter befell her boy. You remember what she did? Took him up into the chamber of the prophet Elisha. And with haste went to find him. You notice that? Elisha sends his servant Gehazi with a message to her to pose a question to her what was it? is it well with thee? is it well with the lad? 
You notice the answer she gave. It is well. The Bible calls her a great woman. I judge she certainly earned that title. We are more like the folk we're reading about. I say again, when the least little problem arises, we begin to murmur, we begin to complain. I do feel sorry for Moses. But you'll notice that Moses got into the presence of God about it. And he said, what will I do unto this people? They'd be almost ready to stone me. What an answer he got. God said to him, go on before the people. And maybe I am speaking to someone tonight. And you feel that the more you seek to help the saints, the more you seek to be a blessing to them, the more they seem to complain. I trust you take encouragement from the words of God to Moses. He simply said to him, Go on before the people. The hymn writer said, Go labor on, tis not for naught. Thine earthly loss is heavenly gain. Men heed thee, love thee, praise thee not. The master praises what are men. And so God instructed Moses to take the rod. You notice, the rod wherewith thou smotest the river. In other words, it was the rod of judgment. And what was he to do with it? He was to smite the rock. You notice on a later occasion, near the end of the wilderness journey, in Numbers chapter 20, when a similar occasion would arise and they have no water, God instructs Moses, take the rod that is before the testimony. That's a different rod now. The rod that was laid up before the testimony was Aaron's rod. That rod that had budded. That rod that spoke of a priestly man alive. And what was he to do? On the second occasion, he was to speak to the rock. I did notice in my study, there are two different words used for rock. The word that we have read about in Exodus 17 is a word that means the low bedrock, the beautiful picture of Christ in humiliation. He knew the rod of judgment when he was here. The stroke fell upon him. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 53 says, He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes. But it's in the singular. With his stroke were healed. There was one stroke that fell upon the sinless Savior. Christ in humiliation knew the stroke of divine judgment. And he did it that you and I might be healed. But the second occasion, it's a word that means the high standing rock. It's Christ in exaltation. And Moses was simply to speak to the rock. We can speak to the Christ who is exalted. We're not left to guess that, that this rock was Christ. 
Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That rock was Christ. And what happened? Well, Psalm 78 says, The water gushed out. Didn't just trickle out, you know. The water gushed out from, from the rock. I did notice that when the psalmist speaks about the manna, he says, God rained manna. That's the way he gives, you know. God doesn't give in a steady way. He rained manna. The water gushed out from the rock. And the people were supplied with the water from the rock. But I want to come quickly to the next section. As soon as the water is given, then came Amalek. Amalek is undoubtedly a picture of the flesh. He was a descendant of Esau. And what do we read of Esau? Who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He parted with all that was spiritual and lasting and eternal. Just for that that would cater to his fleshly appetite. Our brethren oftentimes have told us and rightly so. That the child of God has three enemies. The world. With all its great appeal. And the devil. With all his subtlety. But there is another enemy. And that is the flesh. You say what is the flesh? Well. I sometimes think. If you look at the word itself. If you turned it round the other way. And took off the last letter. You're getting perhaps near the idea. Self. And that has to be dealt with. I think of the language of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 and verse 17. He said the flesh lusteth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, so that they are at enmity the one with the other. We weren't long on the Christian pathway until we discovered we did have that enemy. We have the flesh within. Oh, I know every believer is indwelt by the spirit of God. But we still have the flesh with us. And so there will be a struggle along the journey of life. This was the first en enemy that Israel confronted in the wilderness. You know, they may well have thought to themselves, we've turned our back upon the Egyptian world. And we've seen Pharaoh in the place of death. It will be plain sailing from now on. <laughs> Not so, dear child of God. I remember having meetings many years ago in Glasgow, in Scotland. A dear man came to know the Saviour. Came, came coming along to the meeting, seemed to be enjoying the gospel. And one evening I noticed as I looked down for I scanned my company. I did notice that things were different. And as I was shaking hands with him on the way going out, I said to him, 
Things all right with you tonight? No, he said, I don't think so. I said, would you like a, a chat? Yes, he said, I'd appreciate that. So when most of the folk left, I said to him, what's the matter? Well, he said, the trouble is this. He said, I, I, I don't know whether I'm saved or not. I said, what makes you think that? Well, he said, today, just at work, he said, I had those old sinful thoughts and habits come into my mind again. I said, how do you feel about it? Well, he says, I feel absolutely miserable. I said to him, tell me, how did you feel about those things before you trusted Christ? He says, they never give me a thought. I said, you're learning a great lesson on the Christian pathway. You're learning that you still have the flesh with you. And I have to tell you, you'll have it with you all your lifetime down here. Then came Amalek. I noticed in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I learned that Amalek smote the hinder part of the camp. And those that were weak and feeble, this Amalek smote those that were just on the edge of things. Just on the perimeter of things. And I do fear as I travel in and out amongst the Lord's people. There are far too many just on the edge of things. Let me say to you kindly. You leave yourself open to the attack of Amalek. It's not a great thing just to be on the perimeter now. You know I think that was a trouble with a young lad in Acts chapter twenty. Acts chapter 20, at Troas. You remember he was at the meeting. I judge he had been working out all, all day. And I do read that there were many lights in the upper chamber. And he has come into the heat. And after the breaking of bread, Paul is preaching. And he continues his speech unto midnight. And the poor fellow falls asleep. Well, I never fault them for falling asleep. You know what I fault them for? I fault them for where he was sitting. I read he was sitting in the window. What was the problem? He was just too near the edge of things. Oh, if he had only been in the body of the thing. But sitting too near the edge. I trust you get the lesson tonight. How good it is to be involved in the things of God. And to be involved in the assembly work. There are far too many just on the hinder part. There are far too many just on the edge of things. Amalek came and smote the hinder part of the camp. And those that were weak and feeble. I did notice this that when Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament came to power. He was given clear instruction from Samuel the prophet. What was it? Saul utterly destroyed Amalek. You'll need to be ruthless with Amalek. What did he do? Played about with the thing. Spared the king. Spared the best of the flock and the best of the herds. He thought there was something good about the best of Amalek. And when Samuel appeared on the scene, 
he said to Saul, what, what's the meaning of the lowing of the cattle and the bleeding of the sheep? Oh, said Saul, these, these were for a sacrifice to God. Said Samuel to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We would hardly like to think we were involved in witchcraft. But remember, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. I want you to notice Saul's last day on earth. Where was he found? Mount Gilboa. You'll discover on Mount Gilboa, that very last day, what do you discover? There's a young man there called an Amalekite in other words the very thing that Saul spared is there he said he slew him whether he did or not I don't know if you could believe him but I tell you what that young man the Amalekite did he took the crown of Saul's head and he brought it to David he robbed him of his crown that there is in Christ to those at Philadelphia let no man take thy crown the solemn lesson is this that what Saul spurred was the very thing that was there at his downfall I trust we know what it is to deal with the flesh the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 he said, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And should he do that seven times in a day? If he repents, forgive him. Said Peter in Matthew chapter 18, how often should I forgive my brother? Unto seven times. Thought he was doing well, you know. Oh no, said the Lord Jesus. Not to seven times, but unto seventy times seven. 490 times. But you remember the Lord Jesus said in Mark chapter 9. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. What's the Savior teaching us? Teaching us this. When it comes to our brother or our sister in Christ. Be courteous. Be kind. Be forgiving. But when it comes to self, be ruthless. If your eye is watching something that is hindering you in the progress of the work of God, you'll need to deal with that. The same with your hand or your foot. If your hand is engaged in something that is a deterrent in making spiritual progress, or your foot taking you something that is not in keeping with the mind of God, I trust you catch the lesson tonight. I do trust that you will be ruthless with it. Then came Amalek. How can we win the victory over Amalek? You notice we've read of two things. Joshua with a sword. And Moses with uplifted hand. The sword is undoubtedly a picture of the word of God. Hebrews 4 and 12. The word of God is quick 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Said the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 and 17, he spoke about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I trust we're making use of the sword. I trust my brother, my sister, you're reading it. And meditating upon it. And learning its truth. I saw a sticker, I thought it was good some time ago. It said, seven days without the reading of your Bible makes one week. Not just W-E-E-K, but W-E-A-K. You see, dear child of God, the nature you feed the best is going to thrive the best. I trust we are feeding the spiritual. Joshua with a sword. But I want you to notice, Moses with uplifted hands. And if the sword is a picture of the word of God. The man with uplifted hands on the mouth is a beautiful picture of prevailing prayer. I think of the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. He said, I exhort therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Maybe I should point out there are two different words for men in that very chapter. Earlier in the chapter, in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, Paul says, God will have all men to be saved. And come to the knowledge of the truth. When he says God will have all men to be saved, he means mankind, men and women. But when he says about I will therefore that the men pray everywhere. That's a different word. That's a word for the males. Because in the context of 1st Timothy. It's teaching in regards behavior in the house of God. And so when it comes to the public praying. That is for the males. Men pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. You will notice that the success of the day in Exodus 17 depended on the man with uplifted hands on the mount. There is something that impressed me deeply as I studied this chapter. And it's this. You notice that all the time that Joshua is in the valley with a sword. You never read once of Joshua's hands growing weary. But Moses isn't long up on the mount until his hands grow weary. I judge the lesson is this, that the more spiritual the work, the easier it is to grow weary in it. I can only speak personally. I don't find it an irksome thing to study my Bible. I don't find it a difficult thing to spend hours the reading of it and the study of it. I thank God for that. But let me make an honest confession. 
how more difficult it is when I get down to pray. Five minutes? Ten minutes? Fifteen, could I say? Maybe you're different. It is so easy to grow weary. In the exercise of prayer, but let me make it very clear, that was really the secret of the day. And that is the secret for every meeting. I trust we appreciate that. I learned that very much a few years ago. I was having meetings away up in the north of Scotland, way above the north of Scotland, in the Shetland Islands. I had a very special time. I felt the presence of God and the help of God from the very outset of the meetings. And God came in in blessing. And I really had my own assessment. I, I really felt the assembly here must be in a great way of going. In touch with God. Because it has a reflection when you're up here. I didn't understand the secret of the meetings until I got home. There was a brother in the assembly that I was associated with then. That came from the Shetland Islands. Although he had been away from them for 17 years. He still got the local paper. Weekly paper. Shetland Times got, a, got it sent to him every, every week he asked me when I come home how I got on at the meetings and I told him I thought that the Lord was near and there was blessing well he said I noticed your meetings in the paper and I could see the time of the meetings and he said apart from our own meeting nights he said I went into my room and I spent the, the hour that you were preaching on your knees, on my knees every night. Is it any wonder I had good meetings? Is it any wonder there was blessing? I know in a day to come, it will not be the man with a sword will get the reward. It will be that brother in the closet with uplifted hand. I want you to notice that when Moses' hands grew weary there were two that came to his aid Aaron and Hur. Aaron was Israel's first high priest and I think he is a beautiful picture of our great high priest. What do I read of him? In Hebrews 7 and 25 I learn this he's able to save to the uttermost, all that come unto God through him, seeing he ever liveth, to make intercession for them. But there's another. His name is Her. The, the word Her means white or, or purity. I think he's a picture of another divine person, and that is the Holy Spirit. And what do I read of him? Said the Apostle Paul. In Romans 8 and 26. He maketh intercession for us. With groanings. That cannot be uttered. 
What an encouragement then, my brother, my sister, when your hands would grow weary in the exercise of prayer to understand there are two divine persons that would come to our aid. The Christ of God, our great high priest, and the Holy Spirit of God, just that those hands might be upheld. And as Moses held up his hands, you will notice that Israel prevailed once he let down his hands. The enemy prevailed. I want you to notice with me, it says that Joshua discomforted Amalek with the edge of the sword. He discomforted him. Didn't destroy him now. He didn't annihilate him. Oh, Amalek will come to the fore again. But on that very occasion, he did discomfort Amalek. And then I want you to notice that God instructs Moses to write it down in a book. Write it down as a memorial. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. What was he to write down? That God will utterly destroy Amalek. Moses is the first one in our Bible to be told to write something down in a book. You know, a few chapters over, when you get to chapter 20, God himself is going to write. Not in a book. God is going to write on the tables of the stone. He's going to write down his laws and his government. But before God writes his government, he says to Moses, I want you to write something that will be a testimony of my grace. What is it? God will utterly destroy Amalek. What a day that will be, you know. I think it's that very day that Paul is writing about. In Philippians 3 and 20, he says, Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus, who shall change our vile body. Change these bodies of our humiliation. Fashion them like unto his own body of glory. I tell you, that will be some day, dear child of God, when the Saviour comes. And you and I will be finished with the flesh forever, having bodies like unto the body of our blessed Saviour. I'm not surprised that Moses built his altar. You thought I'd never get to the altar. But it's at the end, end, end of the chapter. He builds his alt, altar. Why does he build an altar? Oh, it's not to acknowledge the victory in himself. Or even the victory in a Joshua. He builds the altar to acknowledge God as a victor. And he calls it Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is our banner. I think that's just what Paul was doing at the close of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. He says, Thanks be unto God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I do trust that God would bless our meditation. Shall we pray?